0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fisk'em All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Y'all, this is a there's a lot going on in this podcast. I feel like there are, you know, there are weeks where not a whole lot of news happens, and I'm like, oh, this is great. We'll be under an hour. And then there are weeks where it's just a week, but we have so many stories. I'm doing the outline. I'm like, Jesus Christ, why are there still more stories as I'm doing this? And in addition to all of the stories, I promised you we'd bring a Law 140 back, and I was going to give you a bonus. We have an interview with somebody. Uh, So this is going to be a very long episode. I'm going to go through it quickly. Just know it's probably going to take you more than a day to listen to it because that's how long it is. So what we're gonna do later on, we have an interview with Karan Myers with the nonprofit Faith in Public Life. Karan's a friend of mine, but wanted to uh, bring her on and get her thoughts about some of the political stories for the week. And then in our Law 140 segment, we will talk about attorney client privilege. I'm going to give you a high level overview of attorney client privilege and how it works, and in particular, how it applies to uh, the son of Papaya POTUS, Donald Trump Jr., and his testimony before Congress. Before we get into all of that, though, I want to give you a couple podcast notes. So next Monday, Is Christmas. We will not have a regular episode because I'm planning to hopefully go visit my family in Virginia Beach as opposed to recording stuff the weekend prior like we typically do. So what we're going to do is we're going to make Christmas Day our next episode of WT Fisk what the Fisk? So send me your questions. I will pick a handful of them. We will get them answered this week and queue up the episode so that it is ready to go on Monday. I've already got I think one or two, but if you have questions that you've wanted to have answered about pretty much any topic you can think of, uh, shoot us a tweet with the hashtag FSCK. Uh, in addition, wanted to thank everybody for their participation in the fundraisers the past two Fridays. Uh, So two Fridays ago, we had the what I'm calling the Samson Memorial Fundraiser for the Durham Animal Protection Society. And through that, we brought in two thousand five hundred and three dollars separate from what I'm going to kick in. I got to kick in another three hundred and ten bucks for all of the individual donors. And then just this past Friday, we had so like for the past two weeks, I've been doing this food raiser. For Eastway Elementary. We do it every Christmas. This is our third annual one where we try to get these kids a, uh, some groceries to last them through the winter break. And we did it three years ago in two days and it turned out very well. So then I thought, OK, let me expand the amount of time we do it. The past two years, we've done it for two weeks and both years consistently even though some folks have participated, like the bulk of those two weeks, nothing at all has happened. Everything has happened in the final 24 to 48 hours. And that's what happened here. So we had no donors at all to the food raiser from December 1st through December, was that 15th, 16th, whatever day Friday was. And then on Friday, in less than, really less than 18 hours, uh, we raised $2,640, which is more than double what we raised last year, and that will be used to go buy food in bulk to give the, uh, the kids. So we're going to have pictures on Twitter, but thank you all immensely for that phenomenal results. I, I don't even think I'm going to do a two-week drive from now on. I'm just going like, to pick a day and try and do it that way. Uh, But that turned out very well. So, okay, because we're going to be talking with Quran here in a minute, I'm not going to get into too much on the politics. There are two stories I want to talk about that I'm just going to do like a a high-level touch on. So there's a banned word list coming to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. We we called it Newspeak in the novel 1984. Uh, But essentially, the CDC in Atlanta was told that there are certain words they're not allowed to say in budget meetings. The seven forbidden terms are vulnerable, entitlement, diversity, transgender, fetus, evidence-based, and science-based. Now, everyone, of course, is up in arms about this, as they should be, because this is beyond fucking ridiculous. But as you are outraged, think about who you should be outraged against. Because a lot of people are outraged at the Trump administration for coming up with this. But as you read through the stories... All the stories I've read on it have made clear that it only relates to budgetary stuff, and what I'm taking away from that is that it's not the administration pushing this because the administration wants to push it. They're pushing it because they think Congress is going to have a problem with these specific terms, and that's why they don't want them to be used, because they're trying to make sure they get their funding from the legislative branch. So feel free to tweet me corrections if I'm wrong on that, but it keeps saying these budgetary meetings, which means the problem isn't Trump. I mean, he's problems for all sorts of other reasons, but it means the problem is your Congress critters and their inability to handle certain words that make them feel uncomfortable. Uh, Also, if you haven't seen it yet, there's a video floating around of Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana, who is a Republican, by the way. Uh, questioning Trump's judicial nominees. And originally, I was going to put in the full five-minute clip because it's just that comically painful to listen to. Um, But basically, these guys are totally not qualified at all to be United States district court judges, which are trial judges. And at one point, so uh, Kennedy asks, for example, when was the last time you've read the Rules of Civil Procedure, when you've read the Rules of Evidence, uh, if you'd ever tried a case? Now, some of that stuff doesn't matter, all right? Reading the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure after law school, you don't really have to read the whole thing. We typically just go and find a particular rule that we deal with. Same with the Rules of Evidence. We don't really read it cover to cover like it's a book. Uh, But there are two problems here. One, you're required to say under oath that you've read both of them to get admitted to federal court. So at the very least, this particular clown's answer when he said he couldn't remember should have been when I got admitted to the federal court system. But then Kennedy went on to ask certain really like super fucking basic questions like do you know what a motion in limine is and the guy said no do you know what the Daubert standard is and he also said no Now, if you've listened to our Law 140s, you know what the Daubert Standard is. You know that relates to scientific evidence, and you actually know how it applies. I don't expect this guy to cite it chapter and verse, but at the very least, he should know what it is because it was taught in law school. He went to UVA. Sorry, I just realized I probably should have told you his name. His name is Matthew Peterson. He has been a lawyer with the Federal Elections Commission for over a decade now. He's been around for a while. And what that confirmation hearing really proves is that being a lawyer at the FEC is vastly different from being a United States District Court judge where you actually have to manage trials. Now, as I was watching it, some of the questions, like I said, when did you last read the Rules of Civil Procedure, the Rules of Evidence? That stuff was no big deal, and I kind of felt like they were essentially gotcha-type questions. But as Kennedy kept going, kept getting to more and more basic stuff, and again, bear in mind, Kennedy's a Republican, I, I literally at one point when he got to the motions and limity not knowing what a motion and limity was I said oh come on out loud as my girlfriend is standing there next to me wondering what I'm watching on my phone. I don't talk to a TV. I don't talk to videos on my phone for me to actually be that exasperated. Y'all, a motion in limine is a pretrial motion to try and have evidence excluded. The words in limine means at the bar in Latin. It's something that you are taught repeatedly throughout law school. You learn about it as a 1L, as a 2L, as a 3L. If you watch any lawyer show, Law and Order, Better Call Saul, whatever else, you have heard the phrase motion in limine before. And Peterson supervised litigation at the FEC. Even though he himself was not a litigator, he supervised litigation. So he should know what a motion in limine is. So this is this is a highlight of the quality or lack thereof of judicial candidates that our beloved Papaya POTUS, Donald Trump, has been nominating. And it makes me question, why the fuck do you bother building up this stable of conservative lawyers, getting these people in the pipeline who are actually qualified if you're just going to put in these fucking imbeciles instead? So hopefully this guy withdraws his nomination. We shall see. All right. So that's all I'm going to talk about on the politics. We're going to talk a little bit more with Karan Myers. So let me jump into that segment right now. all right ladies and gentlemen thank you for sticking with us through the break i am here with our special guest for this episode miss Karan myers Karan, how are you i'm doing well
1: thanks for having me i heard a cool rumor that i'm the first lady that you've had on
0: well you are but you spoiled that i was gonna say that later <laughs> I always gotta jump the gun right 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 now before we get started I do have to uh, disclose to folks that we have worked together for the better part of two years now. You basically mm-hmm. ran the, uh, the western end of the law firm before starting your job that you're doing now with Faith and Public Life. So we're going to get into all the FPL stuff later. Just want to make sure that folks knew that I know who you are. Um, but give us like a, a 30 to 60 second bio of who you are, what you do and how you got here.
1: So my name is Karan Myers. I am an attorney by trade, um, and just recently transitioned into nonprofit work. I went to law school because I majored in political science and quickly realized that you can't do shit with it. So I worked campaigns and quickly became disillusioned um, after college. I guess I sort of had that eighteen year old eighteen ni- year old naivete that people are good, and you know politics killed that. So my <laughs> <laughs> so my first job school was with you. I guess I sort of talked my way into that position. And although I work with FPL, I, I feel like we'll always work together um, to some capacity, even if it's just doing pro bono work, which I know is something that you're super passionate about, something I'm very passionate about. So I think that practice for me, and I guess life sort of changed with Keith Lamont Scott was killed in Charlotte. Um, and an intentional shift that I wanted to make both inside of the courtroom, but also in activism and advocacy work around non-discrimination and police accountability and in racial inequality reform.
0: Now, you were out in the streets during the Keith Scott protests.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a crazy time. And the energy sort of in Charlotte at that time was palpable. The The tension, tension and anger but also um a lot of people that were really out to stand up for each other and and to say that this is wrong and to try to find ways to build, to build bridges and and operate in in a manner of of love love of charlotte love of each other and wanting everybody to uh, have equal opportunities to succeed and to live when they encounter police. So
0: That's what's up. Yeah, I remember watching your Twitter feed pretty uh, pretty consistently back during the protests as you were doing the play-by-play on Twitter with the videos and everything else.
1: Yeah, you were watching it, and MAGA Twitter was watching it, too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you had mentioned it up front that you are, in fact, the very first woman guest we have had on the podcast. We have had five folks so far, uh, Harold Respass, Dave Fox, James Hankins, Jeff Neiman, and Peter Romery—all guys. Uh, So you are both the first woman and the first woman of color. So I was going to make a joke that I promised not to treat you like Roy Moore, but since you graduated high school, you're already out of his age bracket as it is.
1: Why are you Uh, like this?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, I'll I'll, I'll change it up. Uh, You know, I promise I won't treat you like uh, uh, what's his name Weinstein. You know, there are no potted plants nearby. I'm not wearing a robe. Everything will be fine um let's start trajectory is going up and up on this call right let's start with the the Alabama news because this is the this is Monday the first podcast we've had since the election down in Alabama uh, where Roy Moore who was the pedo bear party candidate for the United States Senate somehow managed to lose to Doug Jones by one and a half percentage points uh, and if you look at some of the exit polls, Doug Jones actually got a larger percentage of the black vote than Barack Obama himself, with an astonishing 98% of black women voting for Jones. What do you make of Doug Jones's win in general and the the nearly unanimous, really, choice of black women in particular? Well, I think, I mean, I tweeted
1: immediately after sort of the results came in and I was watching them late at night, most like everybody else was that sort of politically engaged. And I tweeted that this was a mandate against Donald Trump for the black community. In certain respects, it was sort of a perfect storm um, of having an ideological moderate like Jones, who had made intentional strides towards building bridges and going to black churches and talking about about economic inequality and and, and the tensions that African Americans are facing, and econo- economic economic and, and voter disenfranchisement disenfranchisement. And if you contrast that with the steaming pile of garbage that Roy Moore w- was, and the fact that the RNC threw all of their resources behind him in absolute hubris and overconfidence in the GOP and their ability to suppress. The black vote, I mean, it's sort of just kismet how it all came together. And I think also, if I can big us up a little bit, black women inherently sort of have a bullshit detector and it wasn't really necessary. Can you cuss on here?
0: Yes. Okay. Cool. <laughs> we definitely have the explicit rating on the podcast for very good reason.
1: Okay. Dope. Sorry, y'all. Um. But yeah. So that bullshit detector is not really necessary in this instinct because it's one more is kind of harkening back to the overt racism of the '50s and '60s and all those you know years preceding the Civil War and, and Jim Crowism, where you've got a candidate that's straight up telling you like no filter, no guys that. America to him was better when people of color and women couldn't vote and using coded language that we know and recognize as dog whistle and supporting, you know, disenfranchisement of African-Americans in the political process. And then you've also got the lens of these black women are mothers and this is a child abuser. And if they don't have the, the ideological sort of connection to the Republican Party that, you know, Republican women have, it's kind of a no brainer. Um, I think the only real toss up was the effect of disenfranchisement with the voter ID laws um, and closing polls and turning people of color away that, you know, you you don't really know how, that, how impactful that's going to be, despite how many people you galvanize to go out and vote. If they get there and they can't cast a ballot, then, you know, it's a completely separate
0: can of worms. Yeah, RNC definitely thought they had a chance to win. I tweeted out the uh, the night of the election that there are only two things worse than endorsing a child molester and giving him as much money as possible. You know, one of them was withdrawing your endorsement and then giving it back again. Right. And then the other one the other one was withdrawing your endorsement, giving it back again and still losing.
1: <laughs> you got to pick a side. Or you got to stay there. If you're going if you're going to rock with the pedophile, stay with the pedophile, right?
0: Right. It definitely waffled more than a, an IHOP. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: So well, let me ask you a question. So black women essentially saved this seat for the Democratic Party. They have not elected a Democrat senator since I was in elementary school. And that guy was Richard Shelby, who is still there, became a Republican soon after he got elected. Why doesn't the Democratic Party do more to support black women as candidates as opposed to only going to them when they need their vote?
1: I think the long and short of that without giving you a bunch of word soup is that I don't know. I'll tell you things that I do know. I do know that the Democrat Party has to recognize the power of the Black vote and the power of women of color. Historically, Black folks have propped up the Democratic Party with little acknowledgement and even less appreciation. Millennials at this point Especially, I mean, you're looking at coming off the heels of an election where black people weren't crazy about Hillary Clinton. They just recognized the inherent threat of Donald Trump. So coming off of this election, you've got young black millennials whose party loyalty is waning with the Dems. And the only reason I think that they still sort of have a lock on that support is that Republicans are worse on black issues. So the Democrats have to stand for something again. They cannot be against fighting Trump. They have to address people where they are and talk about real solutions for real problems and not talk about, you know, how bad Donald Trump sucks. Like, we know that. Let's move on. Let's move on to things that are more concrete and actually solve some problems. Um, But yeah, overall, Democrats have to start supporting female legislators, as well as people of color and non-binary people and LGBTQ people. And you've got organizations that have popped up, like Run for Something and New Leaders Council, that work to help you know cultivate people of color and marginalized communities and women as candidates. But the party has to do some of the major lifts, and it can't just. It can't just be organizations on their own. Um, and and why haven't they done it? If I was to take a stab at it, I would say historical underestimation of women um, and women of color and historical unappreciation. And I think that the tide is turning and the writing is on the wall where they're going to have to really step up and appreciate those communities or they will lose their support.
0: Now, you would mentioned the tide turning, and I want to talk a little bit, use that as a segue to the unending sexual harassment stuff happening you know it's happening in the the private sector with weinstein that kind of got the ball rolling but there's been a lot of congress critters who have been caught up in it you have had uh, john conyers say he's going to resign al franken uh, trent franks who's a republican from arizona is going to step down blake fahrenhold from texas is going to step down there's at least two more that i can't think of Uh, and then there were just this past couple days there's a female candidate for one of the primaries that is withdrawn from the race because she apparently had a sexual harassment lawsuit settled where she had harassed somebody why is it you think congress people in particular and and people aspiring to congress like roy moore why is it they keep engaging in this type of conduct when they know they have to know that they're under constant scrutiny from the media and at the very least from the opposition party why is this still a thing and why is it so pervasive
1: well i think it, as the old saying goes you know absolute power corrupts absolutely a lot of these allegations are coming back, you know, some some being more, more recent, but a lot of them going back 20, 30 years ago. And so pervasive because they've been able to get away with it. And even when you see people like Franken, who are progressives and are, you know, women's rights sort of heroes and looked at as pillars for advocating for women as, you know, males, you still walk around every day in a society that's encoded with ingrained patriarchy. And to the extent that if you're not, constantly auditing your behavior, it's easy to get caught up in situations where you're acting out in a way that's disrespectful to women, if that makes any sense. I think that there has been the side, there's, I mean, there's a couple different ways that this, this splits off. There's a silence of women um, because of economic duress and fear of harassment and fear of em- embarrassment. If... If certain things come out and even now we're seeing what about and you know, you have somebody like Angela Lansbury that's like, well, what are they wearing even still, even though we know that there's no scientific or statistical correlation really in what women wear and whether or not they're abused. If a man is going to abuse you, you could be wearing a burlap sack. Right. So you even <laughs> have you even have some of that like really nasty shit coming from women where they're perpetuating it as well, um, because, again, patriarchy is ingrained in us. Um, I think now that we're having a larger acknowledgement of what those what inappropriate behaviors look like and what inappropriate comments look like. And even sort of going back and auditing some of my experiences as a young woman, there are a lot of things that people have said to me, even employers that I've had when I was 17 years old working in restaurants. And I have to go back and think like that was wrong. And that wasn't an inappropriate thing to say to a woman, to a young girl. It wasn't an appropriate thing for a boss to say to a subordinate so, yeah, I think there are a couple different factors at at play. And as long as people in power are able to carte blanche, sort of get a, a blank check on bad behavior, these things continue. But I, I mean, I think that I think we're sort of entering a new era. I think the the larger threat that looms is how do we protect women without men going to the extreme and excluding women from the table, a valid place where they have to be to make sure that they don't do anything that's inflammatory or, or inappropriate. And I think that's a larger threat because when you when you do the when you do the thing that the vice president does where you don't sit down with women, you rob them of opportunities because you can't be trusted to act appropriately. And that creates a whole new level of segregating women from sp- from spaces, from employment opportunities, from opportunities to learn. That also, you know, take us back to to pre-inclusion inclusion inclusion times where women were treated equally in the workplace. So I I think we have to be careful to to move forward in a progressive way and hold men accountable at the same time.
0: Now, you talked about going into a new era. My question is, do you think this and I'm, I'm doing air quotes that folks can't see this cultural moment that people keep talking about? Do you think this is going to have a lasting impact or is it going to be one of those things where it's a, a story that's going to consume, you know, 2017 and a couple months into 2018? But then before you know it, it's forgotten about because we've got nuclear war with Korea and a tax bill and whatever new scandals are going to happen in Russia and everything else going on in the midterms.
1: I think that's a valid question because uh, of how the media cycle is. Um, One day we're super into a fad or a dance or a joke or a meme. And then two days later, it's like, that's dead. Don't touch that anymore. But I think that this has been a really dynamic movement in which a lot of women that are that are really respected because I mean, there's certain language that people use to discredit people. You know, she wants money. She's looking for attention. But when you have male actors stepping up and saying this is a systemic problem that even as a male I've been subjected to, like Terry Cruz, I think that creates a really holistic and ripe conversation that survives the media cycle and survives whatever Trump does on a national or domestic economic scale. So I would like to see the tide continue to build on this. I'm not going to lie. It breaks my heart sometimes to see actors or, you know, somebody like Russell Simmons, who, you know, kids from the hood sort of watched come out of a rough neighborhood and and make it to, you know, owning a media company and, and creating some of the biggest names in music like that. It, I'm not going to lie that that stings. But at the same time, if that's what's necessary to ensure that my daughters can go into a space and be treated with respect and be treated like people keep airing them out
0: right you gotta at least get it out there in the public spotlight
1: right Absolutely. i am kind of
0: upset the house of cards is canceled though i'm gonna be honest with
1: you it's coming back it's is coming it? back. Yeah. So <laughs> apparently they're gonna kill kill Spacey's character and then Claire is gonna be president. At Lord least that's the him. rumor, so we'll see.
0: But Lord have mercy. Between that and Scandal, I'm gonna say this. I folks don't know this. I do watch Scandal, been watching it since the beginning. I have been way behind on this most recent season, and I just did like a six episode binge yesterday. And this has actually been a really good season. I've enjoyed it. Listen, a Scandal was one of the first things that we
1: bonded over because I was like, "Oh, <laughs> shut up! You watch Scandal." Um, Olivia Pope is turned into the damn devil, and right. uh, and I'd be interested to see next season how they clean that up because they can't leave her that way. But yeah, um, I was yeah, gonna say from- I,
0: I kind of got the impression that Shauna's going to kill her off before the series is over.
1: You know, at this point, nobody's safe in Shonda Land. So it would not surprise me, I will never forgive her for what she did to Patrick Dempsey and Grey's Anatomy. Shonda, <laughs> I love I love you, girl, but I'm taking that one to the grave. Like, we're going to have beef forever, <laughs> as Cardi B would say.
0: Right. I, yeah. apologize. I apologize to the listeners for the completely unprompted segue. Uh, all right. So let, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now with this group called Faith in Public Life. I'll be yeah. honest. I I have never heard of them. Until I found out you were working for them. I found out on Facebook that you got this job and I was okay, like, oh, let me go look at this group.
1: Greg, that is not true. I sent you a text.
0: Whatever. Same difference. <laughs> I, point is, I hadn't heard of the group until you told me that you were working with them and then I had to okay. go Google them. So what what are they? And then what what, what is your role with them?
1: So I'm the North Carolina State Manager for Faith and Public Life. Faith and Public Life is a strategy center that works to elevate the voices of faith leaders and clergy to stand against discrimination in all of the forms that it manifests itself. So Faith and Public Life was started around 2004, around the second, I believe that's the second Bush term. And when the organization started to recognize that every civil rights movement or every movement for justice that has ever happened in the history of America has happened with the support of clergy. And, or if you look back to the civil rights movement in the United States, it was clergy-led, Dr. King. So there's an enormous amount of power there, and, and churches are some of the only places where you can... Even in politics, have a person walk in and you look at somebody like, like Jones, who we you know discussed earlier, you can have Jones walk into a church and be able and have the opportunity to get 15 minutes in front of 200 black people that he otherwise would have no ability to get in one room. Like churches are a lot of, of, of political and economic power just for the community aspect of them. And so faith in public life recognizing that um, in its organization around 2004, 2005, began to branch out into states in 2008, and recognizing that a lot of the major political power is happening in grassroots organizing. So the work that I do is, you know, North Carolina is the newest state to be added to the organization. There's, you know, Florida, Georgia, and Ohio already. So North Carolina, we're really doing some major foundational building. Um, working around LGBTQ issues to get primed to fight uh, any and all iterations of the bathroom bill once the moratorium is lifted, and make sure that you know everybody is safe wherever they use the bathroom. That people of any orientation or gender identity don't feel threatened or like they're going to be hurt for being who they are. And uh, in two thousand, excuse me, in twenty eighteen, coming up, we're gearing up to do some work around rigged um, maps. And and how we give everybody political opportunity, and also racial equality work, um, and and all again all the lenses that that manifests itself, discrimination against Black trans women to the extent that they're being killed at a disproportionate rate, as if there's a proportionate rate to kill someone, and police accountability. So I mean it's sort of a direct tie into the work that we've done to um to represent people who are standing up for their right to assemble and their right to be, you know, treated and have the humanity seen in them when they engage in police officers. So that's that.
0: So that's a that's a shift from at the beginning when you had graduated college and was disillusioned with politics, you know, now you're you're basically right back in it.
1: You know, to t- quote true detective, time is a flat circle. <laughs> and and yeah, I think that I had to to step away and and I mean even when you ran for for the state senate seat I was kind of baby stepping my way back into it but um but yeah I think sometimes you have to like step away to get some perspective and I think a lot of times like young people especially coming out of college are very disillusioned that they have like all this gusto in their heart they're going to change the world And you can't change the world, but you can't go into it dewy-eyed and idealistic and not recognize that there are certain parameters and framework that you have to work in. And people are are – now I'm sounding like a lawyer. I don't think that people – people are inherently self-interested. And and until you can recognize that in politics, you're going to have feelings hurt. So I think I've, I've lived a little bit more and, and have a bit more perspective on how to approach things. And I won't say I'm not still trying to save the world, but I, I have a, a more tangible understanding of the fact that I'm one person with limitations. And, and if I make one life better, you know, then then we've done good
0: work here. You made an accomplishment. I got you. All right. So how can folks connect with you? If people want to find you on social media, where do they need to go? You can find me
1: at Quran at law. So that's K-A-H-R-A-N-A-T-L-A-W. And that's on Twitter.com. Or just check Greg's mentions because I'm probably just in there yelling at him because uh, when I met you, you were a Republican. I know you're an independent now, but um, I still have some residual feelings about that towards you. So <laughs> I like to camp out in your mentions and remind you that, you know, you're not my progressive hero quite yet, but you're working on it.
0: Uh, Or you're going to end up being a Republican by the time it's all said and done. I don't know. We'll see.
1: Them's fighting words.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Karan, thank you so much for joining us. And hopefully we'll have you back. soon. Thank you
1: for having me. I'll talk to you soon.
0: So, folks, that was Karan Myers of Faith and Public Life. She is on Twitter at Karan at Law. That's K-A-H-R-A-N-A-T-L-A-W. We'll end up tagging her on the, uh, the podcast announcement when we put it on Twitter later on, uh, on Monday. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation. But now let's go ahead and dive into the criminal justice news for just the past week. And I, I hear Avi's head exploding when I say this. I've got 20 pages of criminal justice fuckery to go through. We're going to try and do it quickly, though. All right, here we go. So we don't have any appellate court news this week, but there are a lot of new studies that have come out. Uh, Two of them are from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. So the first one says that teen weed use has actually gone down since it was legalized in Colorado and Washington. There's been a decline in those particular uh, states. From this story, it says, quote, teen marijuana use has been stable or declining since 2012, when Colorado and Washington became the first states to legalize recreational pot use for adults 21 and older, according to data released Thursday by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. The promising federal data comes after release earlier this week of state-specific 2016 results from another federal drug. Drug use survey that showed declining pot use in Colorado and Washington State among 12 and 17-year-olds. So you've got two separate studies with the same conclusions. Uh, The NSDUH results showed 16.2% of young Coloradans and 13.5% of young Washingtonians. Uh, Used marijuana in the past month in 2015 and 2016, and that is compared to higher rates of 18.35 percent and 15.6 percent, respectively, the previous year. Uh, The two states began retail sales in 2014. So one of the key arguments you hear policymakers make against uh, decriminalization and legalization both of weed is that they're afraid that you know what about the kids? Well, this data tends to show that the kids are smoking less now that it's no longer a big deal. It's not taboo. There's also another study from the National Institute on Drug Abuse and the National Cancer Institute. They did this jointly. And it's interesting, what they show is that cocaine-related deaths of non-Hispanic blacks are actually occurring at the same rate per 100,000 as heroin and opioid deaths among white people. So if you think about the public policy response, and we've seen this, we've talked about it, opioid deaths are considered this crisis, this epidemic, this unprecedented thing. Well, you actually have the same quantum of people dying who happen to be black, but we just don't care about that because they're black, essentially. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, cocaine-related overdose deaths among non-Hispanic blacks are on par with overdose deaths caused by heroin and prescription opioids among whites according to a study published Monday in the medical journal Annals of Internal Medicine. In the most recent year's study, 2012 to 2015, cocaine overdose deaths were almost as common in black men as prescription opioid deaths in white men and slightly more common in black women than deaths from heroin overdoses in white women. So ponder the racial implications of that when it comes to policy making. Uh, out of the Washington Post, there's a story from Color of Change, which is a nonprofit that had a study done by Dr. Dixon of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, basically, they looked at several media outlets and covering thousands of stories over the course of time and looked at how they present images of black and white families. And what the study found, surprise, is that the media basically constantly warps how black families are portrayed relative to everyone else. From the study's details, uh, says, quote, the study examined representations of families by race in national and local news and opinion media coverage on television, in print, and online. Specifically, it investigated the extent to which national and local news and opinion media outlets present distorted representations of black families and engage in inaccurate and racially biased coverage, both in word and image. Among the results, what they find is, quote, black families represent 59% of the poor who are portrayed in the media. But account for just 27% of Americans in poverty. White families make up 17% of the poor depicted in news media, but make up 66% of the American poor. Black people are also nearly three times more likely than whites to be portrayed as dependent on welfare. Black fathers were shown spending time with their kids only half as often as white fathers. Uh, Blacks represent 37% of criminals shown in the news, but constitute just 26% of those arrested on criminal charges. In contrast, news media portray whites as criminals only 28% of the time, when the FBI crime reports show they make up 77% of crime suspects. So when we talk about things like implicit bias, people reflexively go, oh, that's bullshit. I'm not biased. I'm not racist. This is the type of stuff that that is. So you don't know what's going on. You're just reading the media and assume that that's reality. And that shades have sorry, pardon the pun, that shades how you look at other people based on what you're getting as your diet of media coverage. Uh, so I'll give you that story in the show notes. From the Marshall Project, there is an analysis of the racial disparity in incarceration and trying to figure out why it's happening. So what you found is that the racial disparity in prison is going down and no one really knows why. Uh, So Eli Hager, writing for them, offers up four different theories. They're not all mutually exclusive, but he tries to explain why that is happening. Uh, First, of course, crime is declining. So as you have fewer bodies to feed the prison industrial complex, naturally that is going to reduce a little bit. And the war on drugs is shifting from crack and weed, which tends to target black communities, and they're now focusing on meth and opioids, which tends to affect white folks, Um, White people are committing more crime because the economy has been down. So especially in the the Rust Belt, folks who have trouble finding jobs tend to resort to crime to make ends meet. Uh, And justice reform that is happening tends to be happening in cities, urban areas, as opposed to rural communities. So he thinks that some combination of those four factors may be why you see the racial disparity dropping in prisons. Uh, There is some less good news in it. Near the end, he notes, quote, at the current rate, the disparities will not fully disappear here for many decades. Even more troubling, racial divides in the juvenile justice system are getting significantly worse. In 2003, black youth were incarcerated at 3.7 times the rate of white youth. By 2013, that number has grown to 4.3 times. So we'll give you that story. Out of Vice, Vice has done an analysis of data from the 50 largest police departments. And what they find, this is probably not going to surprise many of you all, uh, but police shoot a fuckload more people than gets reported in the media. Quote, Vice News examined both fatal and non fatal incidents to determine that cops in the 50 largest local departments shot at least 3,631 people between 2010 and 2016. On more than 700 other occasions, that's on top of the 3,631. On more than 700 other occasions, police fired at citizens and missed. Two-thirds of the people cops fired at survived. Among the findings they have looking at this data is that many of the people shot were unarmed. 20% of the people police shot did not have any kind of weapon. That's more than four times the unarmed rate that is included in the Washington Post database as they've been tracking fatal incidents. Uh, They also found not surprisingly black people were shot more often and at higher rates than people of any other race police shot at least 1664 black people during that time period 55% of the total and more than double the share of the black population in those particular 50 communities that's also a 28% higher rate than what is in the washington post database again washington post is only tracking the fatalities so we'll give you all of these studies in the show notes for you to check out in federal news immigrations and customs and Enforcement kept 92 Somali immigrants on a slave ship for days because apparently they don't know how to fucking deport people effectively. Uh, from the story it says, quote, "Immigrations and Customs Enforcement kept 92 Somali immigrants chained on an airplane for 46 hours during a botched attempt to deport them back to Somalia earlier this month. The plane carrying the Somalis was chartered by the ICE Air Operations Division. Uh, it made a pit stop in Dakar, Senegal, 10 hours after taking off from Louisiana, but the plane never made." It to Mogadishu. Instead, after parking the plane on the tarmac for nearly a day, ICE turned it around and made the 4,600 mile flight back to the United States. ICE deprived the Somalis of adequate food and water and access to a working bathroom during their two day detention on board, forcing them to urinate in empty water bottles or, when they ran out of bottles, on themselves. Further in the story, you find out that the plane's air conditioning system wasn't working right, which also made it hard to breathe. And in at least one case, an ICE officer just said fuck it and decided to punch some of the Somalis in the face for sport. Out of Alabama and our state-by-state state news in Decatur, there is a long read in the New York Times on Morgan County Sheriff Anna Franklin, and they, they look at the power of sheriffs generally, but they focus on Franklin in particular. Uh, here's how the story starts. "Quote One evening last fall, an informant for the Morgan County Sheriff entered the office of a small construction business near this old river town and secretly installed spyware on a company computer. He had no warrant. The sheriff, Anna Franklin, wanted to know who was leaking information about her to a blogger known as the Morgan County Whistleblower. The blogger had been zeroing in on the sheriff's finances, specifically $150,000, that by law should have gone toward feeding inmates in the county jail. Instead, it had been invested in a now-bankrupt used car dealership run by a convicted bank swindler. And it goes on from there. Basically, this particular sheriff is crooked as fuck and is under FBI surveillance investigation. Uh, They also talk about Arpaio, as you can imagine, and several other sheriffs across the country. Uh, Southside, Alabama, this is Roy Moore's County. Uh, Southside Police Department officers Jonathan Works and Brian Walker have both been indicted for rape and sodomy. Uh, Most of the indictment is sealed, redacted, so you can't really see what's going on, Uh, but they were charged for, quote, deviant sexual intercourse with a member of the opposite sex who was incapable of consent by reason of being physically helpless or mentally incapacitated. And Spoiler alert, you're going to see that as a common theme throughout several of these criminal justice stories this particular week. Uh, Southside Police Chief Chris Jones said his office obtained information on November 21st regarding the allegations of misconduct. The officers were placed on leave with pay, paid vacation, uh, and later resigned from the police department. Out of Arizona, in Goodyear, killer cop Jermaine Cunningham, who is a 12-year veteran of the Phoenix Police Department, has been indicted for the murder of his 7-year-old daughter. Uh, Back in February, Sinea Cunningham was rushed to urgent care with trouble breathing and had bruises and scratches all over her body. That prompted a 10-month investigation that led to both Cunningham and his wife being indicted on 10 counts of child abuse and one count of first-degree murder. Uh, The police records suggest that this poor girl had actually been abused for a very long time She had been zip tied to a large water container in the garage locked in a laundry room on a regular basis often left on the patio for hours had been spotted naked in a pile of trash uh, and it gets worse from there. I'm going to give you the story. I'm not going to bother reading it but it's some pretty fucked up shit. Uh, out of California. We got a lot of stuff out of California this week in Orange County. Uh, there's a long read expose in the OC Weekly about the Orange County Crime Lab and how they basically fabricate evidence and adjust their testimony. And they, they trace one particular person in the department. They gave exactly opposite testimony in two different cases about the exact same set of data. So we'll give you that story. Uh, in Pasadena, body cam footage has been released in the gas station beating of Christopher Ballou, or Balu. Uh, basically they stopped him for what they claim is, quote, multiple traffic violations. What it actually was is apparently he was missing a front license plate, which isn't even required in states like California. Uh, So what you see is they, they bystander. Let me back up. First rule of fisk. Police continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. A bystander caught all of this on video where they basically pull this guy out of the car, push him up against the vehicle and he ends up. He's trying to figure out what's going on because again, he's just got a missing license plate. And you see two of separate officers forcing his face into the car. He drops to the ground. They try and force him to stand up, and he refuses because they're physically hurting him. So eventually, they get him face down on the ground. And what you see in this bystander's video is that they keep punching him and kicking him anyway. Uh, Badlu was taken to the hospital. He was arrested on fifty thousand dollars bail for assault on a peace officer. Well, once the video came out, the district attorney says, "Oh, wait, just kidding. We're not going to prosecute you. Uh, In addition, Balu had a broken leg because you actually see on the video one of the officers taking his nightstick and just wailing on the dude's legs as he's laying face down on the ground with another officer on top of him. Uh, Out of Los Angeles, this is a weird story and there are two separate stories both relating to North Carolina. Um, but basically, there's a Fayetteville, a quote unquote, Fayetteville, North Carolina police cruiser that was spotted in Los Angeles. Someone posted it on Twitter. It looks like a fully marked police car. Uh, it's got the stripes and everything else. says Fayetteville, North Carolina on the front doors, police on the back doors. Well, it's not a Fayetteville, North Carolina police car. The department actually had not used this particular Crown Vic, had not used this particular uh, graphics setup. So this is basically someone masquerading as a fake police officer in California. And because they only found out about it via Twitter, no one knows who they are or where they went. You will find a similar story in Cary, North Carolina when we get to North Carolina later on. But there's basically people masquerading as cops, and it's really fucking disturbing. Uh, Out of Sacramento, Xavion Johnson has been released from prison after he served 15 years of a life sentence. Johnson's four-month-old daughter had died, and what he claimed was that he was giving her a bath. He accidentally dropped her because she was slippery, and she ended up being injured, took her to the hospital. She passed away a few days later. Well, the folks who testified in her case claimed that this was actually indicative of shaken baby syndrome and chronic child abuse. So he was convicted of murder, given a life sentence. Well, it turns out, They looked deeper into the medical records 15 years later and found, oh, wait, sorry, we were incorrect. This actually was accidental. So a judge has set aside his conviction and he has been released Uh, out of San Bernardino. Police raided a what they're calling, quote, a weed fortress uh, where there were roughly 25,000 marijuana plants being grown by a white mother. And the key point for this particular story, a lot of it is just typical back padding that you see with police departments across the country. But what is ominous about it is that in the story, you notice the Federal Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms Bureau was on hand Which basically means the federal government is trying to ramp up these weed prosecutions under Attorney General Beauregard, and that's going to be a little disturbing. It's a waste of money and it's a waste of resources when you have so many crimes, in San Bernardino in particular, that have unsolved murders that aren't being investigated because we're focusing on dealing with weed that you just heard in the earlier part of this podcast is not this tremendous plague on the community that the federal government tries to pretend it is. So, those are the stories out of California. Uh, In Colorado, Jeffrey Woodfork has now filed a lawsuit against Adams County Deputy Travis Wilson. Uh, Wilson jumped out of an unmarked patrol vehicle back in 2015 as Woodfork and a woman with him were crossing the street. Uh, The woman ran because, you know, it's not unusual to see cops and you fucking flee these days because they're likely to kill you. Uh, Well, Wilson, uh, Wilson, the deputy, asked Woodfork for the woman's name. So he told the officer essentially to fuck off and gave him the middle finger. Well, the deputy said, "Okay, I'm going to show you and took the guy's hand, took his middle finger and kept twisting it until it snapped, actually broke this guy's finger. Uh, And over the next eight weeks, he was in jail and uh, kept telling the nurses that, hey, this guy broke my finger. It's not healing right. Well, finally, over two months later, they look at his finger and say, like, oh, yeah, your finger's fucked. There's no way this is going to be back to normal. It actually was broken. Uh, so he has sued the officer for excessive force and the jail nurses in the hospital system there for not actually taking a look at it. Out of the District of Columbia, we've mentioned previously the prosecutions of the J-20 protesters Uh, in the earlier podcast mentioned the prosecution admitted to the jury that they didn't actually have evidence against them, but was prosecuting them anyway. Well, the judge has dismissed the inciting a riot charges against the six of them. They found there's absolutely no evidence at all uh, for that. The remaining charges, which include uh, felony destruction of property, and misdemeanor engaging in a riot, as opposed to inciting one, those charges will go to the jury. Uh, out of Florida, Florida has been busy. Uh, in Broward County, several Broward Health commissioners and the board's general counsel uh, were all indicted for violating the state's sunshine laws, which that is super rare. So, sunshine laws essentially are these public acts, open meetings, public records, that sort of thing. That. Are applied to government agencies to make sure that they're conducting the people's business in the public eye. And what they found in this particular case was that the CEO of Broward Health had been involved in some wrongdoing. And as they were trying to talk about how to handle it, what they would do is they would have these secret meetings uh, at a hotel, a restaurant or by telephone. Uh, to discuss the allegations and what they're going to do without telling anybody and then have the official meeting where there's no real discussion and they just have everything get handled. So that's a violation of the law, obviously, but it's super rare to see anyone prosecuted for it. So those indictments are going on down there. Uh, In Citrus County, Casey McElveen was arrested just before seven o'clock on December 6th uh, because this this is so stupid. So he got a call from a school bus, from a student on the school bus, saying essentially he's being beaten up by another student. The bus driver didn't do anything. So McElveen went to where the bus was, got on board, found that this one student was beating the shit out of the student that called him. Took the aggressor student by the arm and said, knock it off or I'll fucking break your arm. Took the student who was being beaten up off of the bus. Meanwhile, again, bus driver just standing there doing absolutely nothing because we train these government employees not to get involved now. Uh, So ended up this particular guy was the one who got arrested when he decided to intervene when the bus driver did not. Uh, And the assistant superintendent says, quote, "'The driver handled this as he should have. He immediately notified dispatch and dispatch notified the authorities. The bus is no different from any other school property. Our first concern is the health, safety, and welfare of our students.'" If that's the case, you would stop the one kid from beating up the other kid, but that's neither here nor there. All right, out of Lake County, Florida, uh, police forcibly arrested and removed a 93-year-old woman as part of an eviction, uh, Juanita Fitzgerald, and there's a dispute over what's going on. So she's in a nursing home. The landlord claims she hasn't been paying rent because she said she was going to die soon. She claims she's tried to pay rent and they refused to accept it, and she called the state attorney general's office. Uh, Well, the nursing home got an eviction order. She refused to leave. So police decided to physically remove her. And of course, all of this is on body cam again, first rule of Fisk. So they're manhandling this 93 year old woman who ended up being in jail for three or four days because of rent. Uh, Out of Marion County, Florida, the Marion County Sheriff's Office deputies Dustin Lay and Christopher Shanding have resigned as part of what looks like a deferred prosecution agreement. Uh, Essentially, you found out back in May of 2017, Lay had beaten the shit out of a female, is what the story says. It looks like it's someone he was living with. Shanding was there watching and didn't do anything. And then as part of that, the woman took out a warrant for aggravated stalking against Lay and the attorney's office said, "Oh, we're not going to prosecute. We'll just do this deferred prosecution agreement instead." In Shandings' case, he was charged because not only did he sit there and watch this guy beat the shit out of his girlfriend and do nothing, uh, it also looks like he was buying prescription painkillers from Lay. So this guy is basically Lay is both a domestic abuser and a drug dealer from the gist of the story. You will be shocked shocked to find that this is not Officer Lay's first involvement with the law. Back in 2013, he was charged with battery for beating the shit out of an inmate and then refusing to get that inmate medical attention. Uh, In Georgia, out of Athens, so I'm not giving you the story because the story doesn't have the picture, and the picture is what matters. So the University of Georgia linebacker Natrez Patrick was arrested for possession of marijuana. Essentially he was pulled over, they searched his car, and they found weed in the back seat. Well, ESPN reporter Mark Mark Schlebach posted a picture of the amount and it's it's comically tiny. It's so ridiculous. If you go take a penny, pause the podcast, go get you a penny, and look at Lincoln's head. Not from the edge of the penny to his head, no, just the head. Pretend the head is weed, and that's it. It's not even enough to cover an entire penny. That's what he was arrested for. So we'll give you a link to the uh, Twitter, the tweet from uh, Mark that has a picture of this because it's so fucking absurd. Uh, Out of Crawford County, Georgia, deputies committed puppy side. They blew away this guy's terrier because supposedly a neighbor called that the terrier had bit him. So they just went ahead and killed the dog right away. And then they told the owner that he had to personally saw off the dog's head to get it tested for rabies. And if he didn't chop off the dog's head, they were going to arrest him instead. And this, of course, is, again, first rule of fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. There are several different videos where you hear both the – you see the officers, but you also hear the audio – where they tell them, if you refuse to cut off the head of the dog that we just murdered for you, we're going to take you to jail. So I'm going to give you a link for that. It's something where it was so ridiculous, so outlandish, that the coverage for it was actually compiled by Snopes, the website that looks at urban legends, because people didn't believe this actually happened. I mean, that's how crazy the story is. Hey, let me tell you something. If an officer, Samson has passed away, so this is a moot point at this point, but if an officer shot the dog there's a very high likelihood that I'm gonna get shot too because I would be out for blood and would try and kill him and wouldn't actually care about the consequences. But if I somehow managed to restrain myself and not try to take the officer's life for killing my best friend, and then he told me that I had to chop his head off, I'm going to die that day, and I'm going to try and take someone with me. So that is out of Crawford County, Georgia. In Illinois, we got a lot of stories out of Chicago. So the Chicago Tribune has a long read on what is really an unprecedented hearing, where there are nine different U.S. District Court judges with roughly a dozen different cases between them, involving 43 different defendants. And they're having a joint evidentiary hearing On alcohol, tobacco, and firearms and what they're calling these stash house stings, you know, basically what happens is ATF finds somebody and says, hey, we got a trap house with a lot of money and drugs in it. You want to go rob it. And then they try and convince these people to put together a team to go rob the trap house. And then they arrest them saying, hey, there's no drugs here. But since you went through this process, we know that you're a bad guy and we're trying to lock you up. Back in the day, we used to call this entrapment, but the laws on entrapment have been so blurred, so you know disregarded by the courts that what you're finding instead is they just pick random fucking black people and say, hey, come rob a stash house. And then they end up arresting them. So from the story, they're talking about two different folks in particular interlaced in with all the legal proceedings with one guy says, quote, Mayfield, for one, talked on undercover recordings about his experience robbing stash houses, but in reality had no arrests for doing so. The fact that he was lured into the sting while he was also working a full time job and apparently trying to better his life has been heavily criticized by the appellate courts. Another case prosecuted in Chicago involved Tracy Conley, who was ensnared after two acquaintances approached him with a plan to rob a stash house, supposedly filled with 50 kilos of cocaine. At the time, Conley was working a full-time job. In fact, he was stuck at a gas station uh, with no money for fuel to get home on the day he was approached. So basically, you got people who are trying to do better. They're in this particular low point in life that they've got to deal with, and then we just go out of their way to completely fuck them over and lock them away for life because they're bad people. These folks get out of prison eventually. you got to give them a chance to turn their life around, but that's not apparently how it works with the federal ATF. Uh, also in Chicago, a judge has tossed out the confessions of several men uh, who were beaten by Chicago police detective Ronaldo Guevara. Uh, we've talked about this in a prior podcast. Basically, this guy had a habit of just beating confessions out of people, and it was normal, and has done it. With dozens of folks. Well, what happened is that it became an issue because several of the civil cases that had been filed relating to excessive force, he was being deposed and started getting tripped up by lawyers who are suing him, discovering that in fact he'd been beating these people to get their confessions. So then he just decided to clam up entirely, wouldn't testify at court or anything else. So the prosecutors had to give him immunity. So that he would agree to testify, and what has come out in these hearings is that, yeah, it's pretty normal, he beats the shit out of people. So the judges have been throwing out confessions and ordering new trials. In several cases, this means folks are going to end up going home. Also, out of Chicago, the city has moved to file a suit against the estate of Quintonio Legrier. Uh, we mentioned this a few podcasts back. This is the really bizarre, messy litigation where a 55 year old neighbor, Betty Jones, was behind Legrier at the time an officer was approaching. They claim Legrier had a bat. The officer shot and killed Legrier, but also fired so many times and missed that he shot and killed Jones. And the officer is Robert Rialmo. So then Rialmo actually filed a civil suit against the city, claiming that he was inadequately trained. Also filed a suit against Le Greer's estate, claiming that if he hadn't tried to attack the officer... Uh, he wouldn't have had to kill him and that the act of killing Legrier caused post-traumatic stress. And then Betty Jones's estate sued the city and the officer because she got killed, obviously. Her civil rights were violated. So there's this whole thicket of really bizarre litigation back and forth, multiple cross claims. Well, now the city wants to join in and sue Legrier's estate as well to try and take some of the heat off of them because they're going to have to pay out a shitload of money for this particular bad officer. Also out of Chicago, ProPublica has done a joint study with the Chicago Tribune uh, looking into the appeals process when it comes to Chicago PD officers. So we had mentioned in a prior podcast that a lot of these folks don't have, that when they do something wrong and they're disciplined, a lot of times the discipline never actually gets enforced. We talked about that one officer who was disciplined like 10 years ago, never actually served his suspension until the media started asking questions about it. Well, that prompted these two, uh, ProPublica and Chicago, Tribune to look into all of their stuff, and what they found is that nearly every single case, 85% of disciplinary cases handled through the Chicago Police Department's Grievance Division, either had their punishments dramatically reduced or got tossed outright, got completely dismissed. From the story, it says, quote, In the first examination of its kind, the Chicago Tribune and ProPublica Illinois found that 85% of disciplinary cases handled through the Chicago Police Department's grievance process since 2010 led to officers receiving shorter suspensions or, in many cases, having their punishments overturned entirely. A suspension for punching a handcuffed arrestee, all caught on camera, that's negotiable. Discipline for making racially insensitive comments during a traffic stop, tossed out, and expunged from the record. Punishments for making false statements and offense for for which the department says it has zero tolerance. Those two were wiped away as if they never happened. So you have officers lying under oath and they have to testify in court right now. Uh, and they're having the punishments dismissed and expunged. So if they ever happen to leave and go to another force, there's no record that that's ever actually happened. So those are out of Illinois, in Iowa, out of Iowa City. This is a bizarre case where a Supreme Court justice has essentially ordered the Des Moines Register, a newspaper, a very famous newspaper, uh, essentially not to print publicly available court documents. The gist of it is that there's a case involving an attorney. Uh, the attorney is a Jason McCleary, who argued in court documents that a uh, several things relating to him and a speech impediment and medical treatment and some other things were part of discovery and accidentally filed by his attorney. They were not supposed to be part of the court record. Uh, the records have been public for months. Well, eventually the newspaper got its hands on it and then McCleary filed a suit asking the court to enjoin any printing of it. Uh, District Court Judge Eliza Avram denied his motion for an injunction, saying that such an order would violate the First Amendment. Spoiler alert, it does. Uh, She also rejected McCleary's request to seal the case from the public, So McCleary then appealed to the Supreme Court, and this particular Supreme Court justice has issued a temporary stay blocking the denial of the injunction order, uh, essentially saying that the paper cannot publish any of the details until the full Supreme Court has a chance to look at it. Guys, I I need you to brush up on what's called a prior restraint. There's a whole doctrine about it. We'll talk about it in a later Law 140. But the gist of it is the court does not have the power to do this in this particular case. You cannot tell a newspaper that the newspaper is not allowed to print public documents. Uh, Out of Kansas in Garden City, uh, three Kansas men who are accused of plotting to massacre Somali Muslim immigrants, they were planning essentially to bomb a church, they filed a motion asking a federal judge to make sure that when they have their trial, they need to have Trump voters on the jury. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, a political difference between the two parties also extends to their respective ideologies regarding the appropriate size and power of the federal government and the individual rights of its citizens, the attorneys wrote in their motion. This case is uniquely political because much of the anticipated evidence will center on and was in reaction to the 2016 presidential election. Additionally, the filing read, this case will require the jury to evaluate and weigh evidence regarding whether the alleged conduct constitutes the crimes charged or whether it was constitutionally protected speech assembly and petition and slash or the right to bear arms you don't have a right to bomb a church you don't have a right to kill people unless it's in self-defense. So this is this is an outlandish filing. I'm assuming it's going to be denied. We'll see. But it's brazen. you got to think of the balls on these particular attorneys, that they want to have Trump voters on the jury because they think these Trump voters are so fucking racist that they'll agree to acquit in a case involving attempted murder. Adam, uh, Maryland... A- <laughs> Fourth Rule of Fisk, The Wire, was a documentary. Uh, We've talked before about Officer Sean Suter. So this was a guy uh, who has been in several stories over the past few weeks. He was set up by a crooked detective to find drugs that were planted on someone else. This particular detective was involved in the Gun Trace Task Force that is currently under federal indictment, lots of investigation because they've been beating people, stealing money and everything else. Then Souter was scheduled to testify in federal court against these other officers. He was killed the day before he was scheduled to testify. The, as he was being transferred to the hospital because of the shooting, uh, the car transporting him crashed. So let me just, I'm going to read you the story because this is, it sums it up very well. Um, quote, Souter wasn't with his regular partner that day. That partner called 911 instead of using his police radio. The police car that took him to shock trauma, the hospital, crashed. Souter was shot with his own gun. He was connected with federally indicted members of the Gun Trace Task Force and was supposed to testify against them the next day. No one has come forward despite a $215,000 reward. It is the longest the city has ever gone without solving the murder of a cop. There have been no leads. Now, all of that is bad. We all kind of figured out that Baltimore PD arranged this guy's execution because he was going to tell against them. Uh, Well, they ended up having a very elaborate funeral procession for Souter. The department went through all the stops, told the media about it, blocked off traffic, had the full funeral procession. They didn't have the body. They never buried him. His body was actually taken by the family to go be cremated. That's where the body was at the time. But they had this whole dog and pony show anyway to, quote, gain sympathy for the department. So I'll give you that story. If you live in Baltimore, God help you. Uh, in Michigan, out of cold water, security camera footage has been released in a very gruesome beating of Tiffany McNeil. So McNeil had been arrested and was in the kind of the lobby area, the secured entrance area of the Branch County Jail. And you see the officer holding her in handcuffs with her face pressed against the wall. Apparently, she's running her mouth. She appears to be drunk. Well, the officer then takes her, puts her on the ground, slams her face first into the concrete floor with five other officers just kind of standing by not doing anything. And then she's knocked out. She's completely fucking unconscious. The officer rolls her over and you see this massive pool of blood under her head that's now visible on video. Uh, ended up she had needed 17 stitches to her eye and also got a concussion. Uh, The officer and two others then lied about what happened in their police reports. I know that's a shocker. They claimed that McNeil was, quote, actively resisting and then accidentally fell to the ground, even though the security camera footage completely disproves that. Again, first rule of fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. Uh, Speaking of, that applies to the next story out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Body cam footage has been released of police pointing a gun at and handcuffing an 11 year old black girl from the story it says quote officers were searching for a woman named Carrie Manning who was suspected of stabbing her younger sister instead at a nearby home they encountered Honesty Hodges the suspect's niece who was walking out of the door on the way to the store with her mom and another aunt Manning is a 40 year old white woman Honesty is an 11 year old black girl. The video released by police picks up as Honesty approaches a pair of officers with her arms raised over her head. One of them points a gun at her and tells her to put her hands on her head, then instructs her to turn around and walk backwards towards him. And basically this girl is like screaming because she thinks she's gonna get shot by the police. Uh, Later on, she's interviewed by the local affiliate, and the little girl says, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't do anything wrong. I've never gotten in trouble by the Grand Rapids police. I used to want to be a Grand Rapids police officer, but ever since that happened, I want nothing to do with them. So you should go watch the video. Luckily, no one dies, but it's a highlight of how thoroughly fucked policing is in this particular community. Uh, Out of the Capitol, Lansing, we've got two different stories. We mentioned in a prior podcast this concept of driver responsibility fees, which is basically an added tax that drivers had to pay in addition to court costs whenever they got a traffic ticket. It led to a lot of people losing their licenses and just accrued this massive amount of debt that they could never hope of repaying. Well, both the state house and the state senate abolished those particular fees. They passed legislation on it. And then there was a dispute of forgiving the back debt that was owed and how much of that was gonna be forgiven. If I remember correctly, I think the senate wanted to forgive everything. The house wanted to forgive a little bit of it. Well, the bill had to go into reconciliation to figure out how much they were going to forgive. And the politicians in Michigan said, haha, joke's on you. We're not going to ever forgive anything. All of it's still due, uh, because supposedly it was going to affect the budget. Meanwhile, they gave a massive multi-million dollar tax break and other subsidies to a particular real estate developer building a new office complex in downtown Detroit. So we'll give you that story. Uh, Also, the governor has signed legislation that officially bans police from having sex with prostitutes. It is now no longer to sleep with a prostitute if you are a cop. Uh, We talked about this many months ago where similar legislation was being passed in Alaska that made Michigan the last state uh, where it was still legal to sleep with a prostitute right before you arrest them. Uh, from the story says, quote, Michigan will no longer have the stigma of being the last state in the country that unintentionally exempts police officers who have sex with prostitutes during an investigation from prosecution. This was a quote from one of the politicians. Notice his use of the word unintentionally. When We all know that's deliberate. It was designed that way. Uh, quote, this common sense legislation has received significant bipartisan support because it protects our law enforcement and victims of sex-based crimes. Uh, in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, uh, former Minneapolis Police Department officer Christopher Ryder has gotten six months in prison for, or in jail, I guess, because it's less than a year. Uh, six months in jail for crushing a man's nose. From the story says, quote, last May, Minneapolis police received a call from a woman reporting a domestic assault. When officers arrived at her apartment, she named Muhammad Osman as the man who attacked her. Police found Osman sitting in a car outside and ordered him to get out and get on the ground. He obeyed peaceably. But while Osman was down on his hands and knees, Reiner walked up and delivered a kick to his face, crushing his nose. Osmond collapsed, bleeding and unconscious. He was eventually diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury. So this guy is following the law, and they beat the shit out of him because they can. So this particular officer is going to get six months in jail. At uh, of New Mexico in Santa Fe, uh, State Police Chief Pete Casadas says he wants the state law enforcement board to make it easier for the public to get access to the agency's investigation records when they look into misconduct by police officers. I imagine that guy's not going to be a chief very long. I wholeheartedly agree. I think it's a great approach, but they don't keep people like that in law enforcement very often. Uh, from the story says, quote, what triggered it was my belief that we have to police our own profession. Caseta said, I'll terminate an officer and he or she is able to be hired on in another department almost seamlessly. Such cases have caused embarrassment to a profession that cannot be above the law while at the same time upholding it. Again, he's speaking truth. I agree with him wholeheartedly. I don't know how he became a police chief. Uh, out of New York, in New York City, the NYPD decided to summarily execute without due process 69-year-old Mario Cenabria. Again, 69 years old. Uh, police broke through the door without knocking to execute a search warrant because they were supposedly looking for this guy's nephew. Well, what the police claim is that this guy grabbed a machete and went charging at police. What it actually happened was that he didn't have anything because the machete was in the room of a 92-year-old roommate, uh, and they ended up just shooting the guy dead for whatever reason. We don't have the body camera footage yet. Uh, but, quote, police were looking for Senabria's nephew, who supposedly had a gun and narcotics in the apartment. Instead, they found a pocket knife and the stub of a marijuana cigarette. Big win for the war on drugs, fellas. Got you a pocket knife and a little bit of weed, and all you had to do was kill somebody. So that's out of New York City. In Tompkins County, New York, Tompkins County Sheriff Deputy Scott Walters has been indicted on first-degree rape and first-degree sexual assault charges. Uh, Don't have a whole lot of details because the indictment is mostly redacted, but it does say that he took a woman to his particular house and had sex with her along with another guy, even though she was, quote, physically helpless. Uh, Out of Utica. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I apologize. Uh, Four separate buildings all burned to the ground. And one of the owners was inside the perimeter of the building, you know, kind of like breaking down because he's watching his life's investment, you know, go up in flames, literally. And he's being escorted. Let me pause. There's a video of all of this by the media, which is why this is a story. First rule of fisk again. He's being escorted away from the buildings towards the yellow police tape. And he's talking, but he's not really being combative. And then out of the fucking blue, you see a Utica police department officer just come up and bum rush the guy, knock his ass to the ground for absolutely no reason at all. So we'll give you the link to the story with the uh, media footage in that case. Uh, Unrelated to police stuff, well, it's related to police stuff, but it's in civil court. So, DeRay McKesson has filed suit against Fox News and Janine Pirro over how they have portrayed his role in the Black Lives Matter movement, particularly relating to the protests down in Louisiana, where he mentioned in a prior podcast, folks were wrongfully arrested and are going to get paid a whole bunch of money. Well, Pirro, during the show after the case had been dismissed by the U.S. District Court judge, uh, Pirro says that he was inciting the violence. She said, quote, in this particular case, DeRay McKesson, the organizer, actually was directing people, was directing the violence. The problem is when you have federal judges who make decisions on politics, activist judges, not on the facts. You've got a police officer who was injured. He was injured at the direction of DeRay McKesson. DeRay McKesson walks away with $100,000 for an organization that is amorphous. We got a problem in this country. So that's the gist of the statement. Duray's claimed that that's defamation and he's filed suit. Now, here's the thing that case is going to most likely get dismissed. If it doesn't get dismissed, it'll be settled for a small sum of money just to make it go away, because those comments from Jeanine Pirro are not defamatory. Go back to some of our earlier Law 140s about defamation and matters of public interest and public figures, and he's just not going to be able to meet the standard required to win in that particular case. So even though I like Duray and his work, you got to know that this case is not going to end up going anywhere. So that's out of New York. In North Carolina, we got a. It's been a busy week in North Carolina. I don't know what the hell is going on. Uh, so out of Durham County, my hometown, WRAL put together a long read about the supposed Klan rally that was supposed to happen back in August. So we had a podcast about the Confederate monument that had been taken down, and I walked through really an hour by hour of my day and how this supposed Klan rally was supposed to happen, and how our sheriff, Mike Andrews, was really pissy about it and gave a statement to the media blaming the lawyers for causing a panic irrationally. And I thought it was kind of a dick because I wasn't really criticizing him for telling folks that there was going to be a potential Klan rally. I just kind of thought they fucked up not being more open to the public about it. Well, Turns out WRAL has gotten text messages, emails, and a bunch of other public record stuff. And what they found is that this guy was telling pretty much every fucking buddy who would listen that the Klan was coming to town. This is all on him. So I'm going to give you the link. The gist of it is the lawyers, myself, Scott Holmes, the other folks who were involved, we really didn't play any role at all in spreading this news. The government was doing it on its own. So I'm going to give you this story uh, out of Gaston County, a 15-year police veteran who is currently serving prison time because he raped an underage girl Uh, He keeps trying to contact her anyway, even though he's banned by law from doing so. From the story says, quote, James Paul Blair pleaded guilty to statutory rape of a child in March. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison, but that came with the agreement that the former Lowell cop would make no contact with the girl for the rest of his life. Turns out he actually sent a letter to the girl, sent it to one of his family members, and told the family member to give it to the girl instead. District Attorney Locke Bell said, I was amazed that he was stupid enough to do it. I'm not going to comment on the stupidity of a particular police officer. Out of Guilford County, Greensboro Police Department officers Timothy and Renee Brewer have been charged with misdemeanor child abuse. Someone reported to the Guilford County Sheriff's Office that the little girl had been the victim of an assault, found out that she had red marks and bruises on her thighs and butt, So her parents have been arrested in Mecklenburg County, killer cop Philip Barker of the Charlotte Mecklenburg PD. This is the idiot that was going over 100 miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour zone. A pedestrian was crossing the street in the crosswalk and this dude was going so damn fast. He literally flattened them. Uh, Well, he's now been indicted for involuntary manslaughter. So we'll see how that case turns out. Out of Wake County, we got three different stories. Uh, First, I mentioned in the California piece that there was an issue with a fake police officer. Well, out of Cary, a mom posted on Facebook that her daughter had been pulled over. And uh, here's this quote. It says, quote, My daughter was pulled over today in Cary, North Carolina for failure to signal. Once the police officer received her license and saw that she was multiracial, he proceeded to tell her she was a half-breed and God told him to witness to her, continuing to tell her that her parents should repent of their sins for being married and that we should have never gotten married. She was a living product of our sin. He then told her she was he was not going to ticket her because his service for the Lord had been done. Well, after talking to the girl... Cary police said, Oh, well, guess what? It wasn't our officer. We used our automated vehicle locator records. We checked our dispatch narratives and there's no one in this particular car with blue lights pulling people over uh, who happened to be with the Carrie police department. No one knows who he is. So you got fake cops in Carrie, you've got someone with a fake Fayetteville, North Carolina police car in California. Uh, there's a lot of really creepy shit going on. So if y'all happen to get pulled over, make sure you turn on your phone's camera to record it just in case something Something happens. Uh, also, at Wake County School Resource Officer at Sanderson High School has been reassigned because he was caught on a student's cell phone video, uh, basically choking the shit out of somebody. So, two students were fighting. This particular SRO, who again, SROs are a fully uniformed police. They have full police powers. Um, was breaking up the fight, escorting these two kids to the principal's office. One of the kids ran. So the officer took him, put him to the ground. He just has his hands on his throat, choking the shit out of this kid. And of course, it's all caught on video. So we'll give you a link to that story and political news in Wake County. The former Register of Deeds, Laura Riddick, who's a Republican who's been in that office for decades. I mean, she she's one of, like I know her. I've worked with her when I was the vice chairman for the Wake County Republican Party. Uh, she's been indicted because she has embezzled nearly a million dollars in money from her office. Uh, from the story in the News and Observer, says, quote, a Wake County grand jury handed up indictments against Riddick and three former Register of Deeds employees Tuesday in a probe into what happened to $2.3 million over a nine-year period, Riddick, Troy Ellis, Veronica Geerin and Murray Parker are accused of embezzling more than $1.13 million over the past six years. Investigators haven't been able to account for what happened to an additional $1.2 million of the missing money. So the Register of Deeds handles uh, marriage licenses, recording, land deeds, a bunch of other stuff. And it's one of the few government agencies where you can, in fact, pay in cash. So they deal with a lot of cash transactions every day. And essentially, there was this conspiracy among these four folks to skim a little bit off the top over an extended period of time, and it's crazy to me because I, I really thought better of uh, Miss Riddick, and it's just it's it's a totally bizarre thing that you have someone stealing this much in plain sight and not getting caught until now. Uh, so we'll see how her case transpires in Ohio out of Austintown uh, a college student basically got catfished by local police and then arrested and charged with felonies and it's a it's a disturbing case because the kid that he was that the police were pretending to be was a 15 year old but there's no evidence that this particular guy they've arrested was in the habit of targeting minors. So Elizabeth Nolan Brown, who's a columnist for Reason Magazine, uh, she talked about it. And, and I'm going to give you an excerpt from her stuff at length. She says, quote, Austin Town police officers used a phony dating app profile for someone purporting to be an adult to lure in the student earlier this month. After chatting, the catfish, quote, revealed, unquote, that he was 15 years old. The college student, A.G., indicated he didn't have a problem with the boy's age. The conversation eventually turned sexual, and A.G. sent the fake boy some nude photos of himself. Yes, Ohio law prohibits both sexual activity and sexually oriented digital communications with minors or undercover cops pretending to be minors. And no, I don't condone college students trying to hook up with high schoolers. But interest from someone a few years over 18 and someone just a few years under 18 doesn't necessarily denote deviant sexuality, especially when that interest is circumstantial. AG didn't start out looking for someone underage. This is a young man who is about five feet, seven inches tall and weighs 450 pounds, according to the police report. He's gay in a part of Ohio where that's still really difficult Sometimes. I can't imagine finding romantic partners has been easy in this man's life. And then he finds what he thinks is someone reciprocating his flirtations and encouraging his advances and inviting him over to spend time together. Having a hard time in romance doesn't justify sleeping with teenagers, but in this case, there was no actual teenager and no actual sex, and there's no evidence that he would have looked for an underage sexual or romantic partner on his own. AG was preyed on by police who pretended to be interested and said exactly what he wanted to hear, even after after realizing the emotional attachment he was developing and the potential psychological effect this was having on him. And now he will likely be branded a sex offender and a pedophile for life. Again, horrible misallocation of police resources. When we have real crimes going on, we don't have to invent fake crimes from the ether with these stupid fucking entrapment bullshit. Uh, Out of Cincinnati, body cam footage has been released of a Cincinnati police uh, basically illegally tasing two brothers. Uh, One of the brothers is verbally combative with the officers, but he's not doing anything physically. The other brother stands up and puts his hand out to stop the first brother from getting in the way of of police. Well, there's all of this is on video for an extended period of time. It's like a five-minute long video clip, and you see one brother with his hands on his head, not moving, not coming forward, not going back, just standing still. The other brother has his mobile phone out recording people. Never did the officers say, hey, you guys are under arrest. you are got this particular crime going on or whatever else. There's just a lot of shouting back and forth with the officers telling him to get on his knees and one guy refuses. Well, they end up just randomly tasing the first brother. And then they tase the other brother four separate times. This, of course, has now all been released and the department says, oh, this was a terrible violation of policy. I can't believe this happened. Yeah, bullshit. Uh, Turns out the one brother they tased four times was then had three officers on top of him because they thought because he was tased four times, I guess they thought he was on meth or something. Uh, Basically, he was taking his free hand and just removing the barbs. Uh, So he ended up, they collapsed his lung. They forced him on the ground and ended up compressing his lung to the point that it collapsed. And on top of that, he was recovering from back surgery. So his back is thoroughly fucked up as well. Uh, So again, remember, never advised they were under arrest, never advised they were doing anything wrong. It's just Cincinnati police doing what police do. Out of Columbus, the Conservative Buckeye Institute has come out in favor of bail reform from the story. It says, quote, The Buckeye Institute, a conservative think tank based in Columbus, has added its name to a growing list of organizations calling for bail reform in Ohio. The Institute released a report Monday that contends the practice of requiring defendants to post money in order to secure their release from jail is an inefficient, expensive, unfair means of protecting communities that has proven no guarantee to stopping repeat offenders. The report Money Bail may Making Ohio a More Dangerous Place to Live is authored by Daniel J. Dew, a legal fellow at the Buckeye Institute's Legal Center. "...many criminal justice systems throughout the country foster an outmoded practice of pretrial release that allows accused murderers, child rapists, armed robbers, and dangerous gang members to be arrested and released into our communities to await trial. Meanwhile, many jurisdictions allow otherwise law-abiding, harmless citizens to sit in jail for days, weeks, or even months before trial for jaywalking, violating dress codes, or failing to pay traffic tickets." good news there out of oregon in portland uh, there's a story about a portland police officer who essentially threatens activists with arrest when they are recording them illegally Uh, saying that if you don't stop recording, quote, you could be arrested. Now, first, that's false. They can't be arrested uh, because that would be against the law. But because they couched it as that hypothetical, you could be arrested. The police leadership has said they have done nothing wrong and therefore no discipline will be uh, needed there. Uh, Also, the Oregonian has an in-depth investigation into the Oregon Department of Public Safety Standards and Training, uh, where essentially they're finding that Officers who are screwing up are continuing to be on duty. They're still considered fit for duty and no actual conduct is taking place. From the story it says quote the Oregon Department of Public Safety Standards and Training wins national praise for holding police officers accountable for bad behavior academics journalists and regulators in other states describe the department as a model but an investigation by the Oregonian found that state regulators took no action to sideline dozens of officers fired for chronically inept police work or worse the department let fired officers remain eligible to work even after they accumulated records of brutality, recklessness, shoddy investigations, and anger management problems. Regulators quietly closed one case after an officer was fired for using excessive force on two handcuffed suspects and for driving 120 miles an hour at night through a construction zone. They closed the case of another who was fired for uh, disciplinary records showing he botched investigations, refused to finish police reports, failed to show up at court proceedings, abused sick t- And earned a reputation for being volatile and rude. And this is all from a department that is supposedly the model, someone we were supposed to all be uh trying to emulate. So that is out of Oregon. In Pennsylvania, in Alaquipa, I guess that's how you pronounce it. Don't don't at me if I'm wrong. Well, I guess technically Tell me because people laugh about it. Uh, but the entire Alequipa Police Department, the whole department, has been restricted from accessing a police database because they've been abusing the information that they get. Uh, from the story in. Uh, It's called the Beaver Countian, which I think is a very cool name for a newspaper uh, from Beaver County, obviously. Uh, But it says, quote, the Pennsylvania State Police has placed restrictions on the entire Aliquipa Police Department's access to information from the Commonwealth Law Enforcement Assistance Network and has opened a criminal investigation into the unlawful dissemination of sensitive law enforcement records and several related matters. Pennsylvania State Police took the extraordinary measure of placing special restrictions on their access to the network following an investigative report published by the Beaver County in last week that first revealed a leak of the sensitive records. Uh, Out of Texas in Austin, a viral video has been released of three Austin Police Department officers beating the everlasting shit out of 37-year-old Jason Donald for crossing the street illegally. Yes, for jaywalking, essentially. Uh, and then once the, vi- the video went viral that they're beating this guy for no reason, the department then releases his mugshot to try and make it look like, you know, he's a problem. So we're going to give you that story as well as the video. Uh, out of Dallas... Dallas Police Department officer Christopher Hankins has been placed on administrative leave, that's paid vacation, uh, after he tried to walk out of a Denton County Walmart pushing a shopping cart full of items that he hadn't paid for, and then if that wasn't bad enough, while he was being investigated for stealing a bunch of groceries from Walmart, uh, the 30-year-old was arrested last Saturday by Aubrey police and charged with third-degree felony for family violence because he basically beat the shit out of his girlfriend. Uh, In Washington, out of Port Orchard, Michael Martin has been arrested after he posted comments on the Kitsap County Sheriff's Department Facebook page that was critical of the department. So basically being arrested for First Amendment protected expression. From the story, it says, quote, Former Deputy Matthew Hill, the subject of a story posted December 7th on the Kitsap Sun's Facebook page, was sued in U.S. District Court for a 2014 incident where he entered a house and subdued the wrong man while pursuing a suspect in a high-speed chase the man hill subdued frank fuller sued hill and the sheriff's office a jury found on december 1st that hill had not used excessive force hill then left his position in 2016 due to injuries sustained in the line of duty the facebook comments attributed to martin which were critical of law enforcement's actions in the fuller matter said quote he's a terrorist and should be executed martin also said quote his name is matthew hill what is his address When another commenter questioned why he wanted Hill's address, Martin wrote, So I know where to stay away from, of course, or maybe I can get a shiny badge, break into his house, and get away with assaulting and kidnapping him. This is all protected expression. Go back to our earlier Law 140s on free speech and your right to criticize the government. Uh, this case is going to end up getting dismissed, and frankly, I'm a little astonished that they managed to arrest him anyway, because they should know better. So that is the state-by-state news for America. Every now and then, we do cover stories in other countries. In the United Kingdom, out of London, there was a rape trial for Liam Allen, who was a college student. It was actually stopped mid-trial, and the case thrown out, as the prosecutor apologized to the defendant, Uh, because police failed to turn over uh, over 40,000 text messages from the alleged victim showing that the sex between them was consensual. From the story, it says, quote, A judge has called for an inquiry after the trial of a student accused of rape collapsed because police had failed to reveal evidence proving his innocence. The judge demanded a review of disclosure of evidence by the Metropolitan Police, Britain's biggest force, and called for an inquiry at the very highest level of the Crown Prosecution Service. He warned of the risks of serious miscarriages of justice. After hearing that, to save costs, material was not always handed to defense lawyers. Sidebar, that happens a lot here in America, too. Uh, The discovery was made when a new prosecutor took over the case one day before the trial began and ordered police to hand over records, including a computer disk that contained 40,000 messages. Essentially, what you find out is that police had this disk with all the text messages and they hadn't even bothered to look at it. Uh, so the prosecution apologized to Mr. Allen, and that case has been tossed. So that is the, just the past week's worth of criminal justice news. I know it's been a lot, but we're still not done, because I promised you we would have a Law 140 this week. So let's dive into that now on attorney-client privilege and how it all works. <laughs> So last week, the son of Papaya Potis, Donald Trump Jr., was testifying to Congress about his interactions with the campaign as part of the congressional investigation into the, uh, the Russia interference with the election. And he's talking for like an hour and then he gets to a specific question about a conversation with his dad, and he claims that he's not going to disclose that because of attorney-client privilege. And he says that there was an attorney in the room, and therefore the, uh, the conversation was privileged, and that's a wrap. Also, in this past week, it was discovered that uh, Bob Mueller's team had gotten access to a lot of email and other records that had been maintained by the General Services Administration, and the Trump campaign is claiming that that stuff is privileged as well. They're basically trying to set the groundwork to discredit the probe. But in reality, what it really means is they probably have some super incriminating stuff now in Bob Mueller's hands. But that prompted a lot of questions about what is attorney-client privilege? Is that a valid use of the privilege in Donald Trump Jr.'s case? How does it work? And the short answer is it's it's a very old Doctrine. It predates the Constitution. It goes back to early in the British days. Now, remember, we inherited our commonwealth system, our common law rather, system of government from the United Kingdom. So we all have the same roots America, Canada, South Africa, Australia. You know, we all have the same basic stuff in the beginning, and then we all kind of diverged off on our own since then. Well, the attorney-client privilege is something that is designed to promote people being honest with their lawyers as they're trying to get help. So you see it in, for example, the federal rules of evidence in a few different spots, Uh, Federal Rules of Evidence 501 says, "...the common law, as interpreted by United States courts in the light of reason and experience, governs a claim of privilege unless any of the following provides otherwise, the United States Constitution, a federal statute, or rules prescribed by the Supreme Court, but in a civil case, state law governs privilege regarding a claim or defense for which state law supplies the rule of decision." Uh, Federal Rules of Evidence 502 also talks about attorney client privilege in particular and when it is waived and the scope of that particular waiver. And then earlier in Federal Rules of Evidence 104, subsection A, it says, "quote, the court must decide any preliminary question about whether a witness is qualified, a privilege exists, or evidence is admissible, in so deciding, the court is not bound by evidence rules on things like hearsay and that sort of thing," uh, "quote, except those on privilege." So essentially The federal rules require the U.S. government, the federal courts, to look to the state governments for determining what privileges exist and what scope they have, because there's more than just attorney-client privilege. Uh, A lot of states also have a privilege for doctors and patients, uh, for uh, therapists, marriage counselors, for priests and congregants, where there's a prohibition on this stuff being admissible in court. Um, so the federal government looks to the states for that. So when you're figuring out what attorney-client privilege is – you have to look at state court decisions on a state-by-state basis. Now, of course, I am only licensed in North Carolina. Uh, I'm licensed in all North Carolina federal courts and the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, but I don't know what applies to your particular state. So as we go through this, keep in mind, your state's going to be similar, but there might be some differences, and that applies to the rules and all the exceptions and everything else. Uh, But the one way that the Fourth Circuit has put it together, they have a really nice checklist where they talk about what it takes for attorney client privilege to apply. And what they've said is that the privilege applies when, and this is a multi-part list, so I'm going to try and narrate it for you, even though it's best looked at visually. Uh, when, quote, the asserted holder of the privilege is or sought to become a client, that's subpart one. Uh, Subpart two, the person to whom the communication was made is a member of the bar of a court or that person's subordinate, and that particular person is acting in their capacity as a lawyer for that particular communication. Uh, Subpart three, the communication relates to a fact of which the attorney was informed by his client without the presence of strangers for the purpose of securing privacy. Primarily either an opinion on law or legal services or assistance in some legal proceeding and not for the purpose of committing a crime or a tort and then subpart 4 the privilege has been claimed and not waived by the client there's a lot there so when we talk about you know why i became a lawyer when i was doing computer science there's a lot of ifs and elses and therefores and buts and so on in here it's really just boolean logic when you boil it all down uh, but the gist of it is how does it work north carolina has condensed it you know fairly succinctly what they say in a case called state versus mcintosh is quote when the relationship of attorney and client exists All confidential communications made by the client to his attorney on the faith of such relationship are privileged and may not be disclosed. So what this means in practice is a few things. First, the attorney cannot be compelled to testify or give any information to anyone about what the client has said. Uh, Documents, notes that we compile cannot be forced to be turned over. Uh, And in addition to that, any evidence that is theoretically given in violation of the privilege is ruled inadmissible and excluded. That's the theory anyway. Uh, and on top of that, we don't get to violate privilege on our own. If we break attorney-client privilege without the client's permission, we're subject to being disbarred because that's a very cardinal piece of being a lawyer. And the privilege is so serious that it actually survives after you die. Uh, so there's a United States Supreme Court case. It's Swidler in Berlin versus the United States. So this is about the 1993 case involving the White House travel office during the Clinton years. It was called Travelgate back then. Uh, Deputy White House counsel Vince Foster had spoken with an attorney at Swidler and Berlin's law firm trying to get legal advice on whether or not he was potentially going to be in trouble. And then just over a week later, Foster committed suicide. He killed himself. Well, as part of the subsequent investigation by uh, Ken Starr, Star subpoenaed notes about his meet about the lawyers' meeting with Vince Foster, and the law firm said, No, you can't do this. Attorney client privilege applies. And the question was whether or not the privilege survives death. Now, again, bear in mind, because this is a state-oriented doctrine, it's it boils up from the states as opposed to being from the Supreme Court going down. The Supreme Court's opinion in this case is not binding on the states. The states can choose to do something differently if they want because it's a common law doctrine. Uh, but what the court decided in a six to three decision was that the attorney client privilege survives the death of the client when it comes to all federal cases. What the court said, quote, The attorney-client privilege is one of the oldest recognized privileges for confidential communications. The privilege is intended to encourage full and frank communication between attorneys and their clients, and thereby promote broader public interests in the observance of law and the administration of justice. The issue presented here is the scope of that privilege, more particularly, the extent to which the privilege survives the death of the client." Our interpretation of the privileges scope is guided by the principles of common law as interpreted by the courts in the light of reason and experience. And they go on to say essentially looking at a lot of state-level court decisions, a lot of uh, appellate decisions in state courts, because again, this is a common law doctrine, boils up from the states as opposed to going from the top down. Um, They found that the prevailing sentiment of most states in most cases is that attorney client privilege survives even after you die that's how serious it is now as i mentioned this is something where states are free to do differently if they see fit so in north carolina we actually have a separate set of cases that confirms the same basic premise uh, in 2003 there was a north carolina supreme court case called in ray miller which was about a doctoral student who had been killed by arsenic poisoning the arsenic had been administered by his wife And the question was whether the uh, privilege survived death in that particular case. And even though this was decided after the case involving Vince Foster, it was a what's called a matter of first impression, something the state court had not considered before. And the state said, "Yes, we're going to take the same approach as everyone else; that the privilege will continue to survive after you have died." Now, there are a lot of exceptions to attorney-client privilege. So, the first, as in that Macintosh case that I mentioned, is if you're not seeking legal advice. There is no attorney client protection. So if I'm, you know, at a basketball game with a friend of mine who happens to also be a lawyer and we're talking about how much the president sucks, that's not privilege just because he happens to be a lawyer. I'm not seeking his legal advice, so the privilege doesn't apply. One of the big ones is what's called the crime fraud exception that has been developed in most states and applies in federal cases as well. The Supreme Court case that talks a bit about that is United States versus Zollin from 1989, and this was involving the uh, Church of Scientology, and the Internal Revenue Service was investigating their tax returns they demanded that the lower court turn over audio tapes and other stuff from civil cases where folks had sued the Church of Scientology. There had been depositions and discovery. IRS wanted those records. The Church of Scientology tried to intervene and claim that these were protected by attorney-client privilege. And part of the opinion. The Supreme Court says, quote, We have recognized the attorney client privilege under federal law as the oldest of the privileges for confidential communications known to the common law. Although the underlying rationale for the privilege has changed over time, courts have long viewed its central concern as one to encourage full and frank communication between attorneys and their clients and thereby promote broader public interests in the observance of law and administration of justice. That purpose, of course, requires that clients be free to make full disclosure to their attorneys of past wrongdoings in order that the client may obtain the aid of persons having knowledge of the law and skilled in its practice. The attorney-client privilege is not without its costs. Since the privilege has the effect of withholding relevant information from the fact finder, it applies only where necessary to achieve its purpose." The attorney-client privilege must necessarily protect the confidences of wrongdoers, but the reason for that protection, the centrality of open client and attorney communication to the proper functioning of our adversary system of justice, ceases to operate at a certain point, namely where the desired advice refers not to prior wrongdoing but to future wrongdoing. It is the purpose of the crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege to assure that the seal of secrecy between lawyer and client does not extend to communications made for the purpose of getting advice for the commission of a fraud or crime. So crime fraud exception is a big one. Uh, also, some other exceptions to attorney client privilege. When you're claiming ineffective assistance at counsel, you're asking for a case to be thrown out because your lawyer did a poor job, the privilege is waived as to those matters that are relevant to the allegation of ineffective assistance. Uh, it doesn't apply when an attorney is testifying regarding a testator's intent to settle dispute over an estate. And if there's a third party in the room and that third party is not acting as an agent of either party, it's considered waived because it's not confidential. You have someone else there who shouldn't be, who's talking about it. So for example, I'll often have college students who will come to me for legal advice and the parent shows up because they're footing the bill. I have to kick the parent out because if mom or dad is still in the room, even though I'm talking to their legal adult child, uh, the attorney-client privilege doesn't exist in that particular case. So there's a, a common exception to the exception. So I just gave you the list of the exceptions. The last one there about someone else being in the room. There's an exception to that called the common interest exception, which means that if you're a part of a multi-person conspiracy, you've got four of you that are charged with the crime. The law allows y'all to meet with your lawyers jointly and still have under attorney client privilege to have discussions about how to best, you know, pursue your common interest in court. So there are a couple different arguments that were advanced relating to Donald Trump Jr. and whether or not it would apply. One of those was that if both he and the president are under investigation, the common interest exception would apply and it wouldn't be a big deal. Um, And do you think that's going to be good enough? And what the media has said is that they've talked with several legal experts to say, yes, that, that that that's good enough for the interest to apply. I'm skeptical that that's the case. And the reason why is that I think it's actually the first exception that we talked about is that they weren't actually trying to get legal advice from the lawyer. Because if you look at how Trump Jr. talked about the lawyer's presence, it wasn't, I'm talking to a lawyer and my dad happened to be there. It was, I'm talking to my dad and the lawyer happened to be in the room, which makes me think they weren't actually seeking legal advice. I don't think the privilege would apply in this particular case. But one thing you have to remember is that Congress, it's up to them to try and push in this particular case because it involved testimony before them, uh, and they're not going to do that. So even though it might not legally apply from a political practical standpoint, Congress isn't going to push it, so that's kind of a wrap. So folks, that's going to do it for this Law 140. That is going to do it for this entire podcast. I'm sorry that it's super, super long. Uh, We'll hopefully have a shorter one next week when we do our next version of W.T. Fisk. Send me your questions with hashtag FSCK. Uh, And until then, on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy and Karan, thank you for joining us. Uh, We hope all of you have a fantastic week ahead and we will talk to you two Mondays from now. Take care.